How would you like to get your board exam fee paid for? Go to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash paymyusmle to find out how you can do so by entering our contest, whose grand prize is payment for your USMLE or Comlex examination registration fee, thanks to physicianloans.com. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. Yes, I am Patrick Beeman, your host, board-certified OBGYN, former director of undergraduate medical education at Online MedEd, founder of Inside the Boards, and lover of, hmm, let's see, metalcore music. Yes, that's right. Um, Today's episode is with Andrea Paul from Board Vitals, and we'll get right into it, but I will say stick around at the end for both a, you know, series of announcements like usual. Hey, we got to promote things to keep the lights on and and encourage you to, you know, help us build inside the boards through spreading the word and or purchasing a subscription to our All Audio QBank. But at the end, I also want to share kind of a personal story with you guys, because I think it's somewhat relevant to medical education and the care of patients. So, If you're interested in that, stick around at the end to hear more. Today's guest is Andrea Paul. She is the founder of Board Vitals, but I will let her tell uh, the audience a little bit about herself. Sure, sure. So um, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Board Vitals started as uh, actually in the medical specialties and a way to fill in kind of a gap of high tech and, and high efficiency options for studying. So we started in some of the medical specialties and then ended up focusing a large part of our effort on USMLE as well. So we started in 2013 or late 2012, early 2013. And you know now we're up to 57 different question banks. Just perusing the website, it's uh, pretty impressive how many different exams you guys have uh, material for. Plus, an excellent blog, I might say. Yeah, we we tried to look at you know every area, not just for you know residents and medical students, but a lot of healthcare actually was lacking good study options, and we really feel strongly that question based studying is the most efficient and effective. So, we kind of went out and on a mission to try and help as many different healthcare professions as we could. That's awesome. And uh, that's our shtick, too. Uh, It's sad that a lot of people don't realize how very important using standardized questions are at the beginning of med school. Myself, it took me about a year and a half to realize uh, how effective those can be at helping one retain information. And I guess on that note, why don't we get into today's question from Board Vitals? Okay, great. I'll just uh, read off the question. So a 32-year-old male presents with dyspnea, fatigue, and a non-productive cough that has progressively worsened over the last three months. History reveals no past medical history. The patient is a non-smoker. His exam reveals wheezing in the bilateral lower lobes. And labs reveal an elevated AST-105 and ALT-114. The uh, question asks, the defect is most likely to be present in which of the following structures or processes? All right. Answer choices. You've got A, conjugation of bilirubin, B, epithelial chloride channels, 
see inactivation of neutrophil elastase or d regulation of iron absorption so uh dr paul how would you approach this um, you're a pathologist by training correct i did internal medicine um internship and, and then pathology so i guess i have a little little bit you of know, both. a little bit of both in my okay. background if you didn't have that knowledge um, and you were a, say, first-year medical student, end of the academic year, or second year preparing for step one, how would you approach this question? So I think, you know, the key things for me when I'm reading a question that is kind of a clinical vignette, and this one's kind of one of the multi-step where it doesn't directly ask what is the diagnosis. It assumes that you know what the diagnosis is. And so, you know, the key is looking at the patient's age, the clinical symptoms, you know, any other, any things that are relevant in the question that would kind of indicate, okay, something's going on in which organ systems and what kind of all fits of kind of putting all the pieces of the puzzle together into what, what do you think would be most likely? Yeah. So in this one, just to uh, remind the audience, we've got a young adult male. His presenting symptoms are dyspnea, fatigue, and a non-productive cough that's getting worse. He's got bilateral wheezing on uh, lung auscultation and mild elevations in his transaminases. And our task is to define or identify the defect most likely to be present in the answer choices here. I guess the first step there would be getting a diagnosis or a differential at least for what this might be, and then going on to the actual interrogatory here. Is that kind of the general approach I guess you would take? It seems obvious, but I think having a systematic process is probably most effective at getting these uh, right and avoiding some traps uh, or cognitive errors uh, in approaching exam questions. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, you know, that's what I would go through. And it also helps, I think, to look at the answer options and kind of think about what each one represents and whether that fits this particular case as well. Okay. So if I'm reading this, my first thoughts are with the presenting symptoms. I'm hoping as I go through the vignette that number one, I guess, that the question is going to ask us for a diagnosis. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And then that first line, I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be maybe an asthma, maybe a pneumonia question, but I guess the real kicker is the transaminitis here. So mm -hmm. in that case, I'm trying to think of something that accounts for both a respiratory issue and a hepatobiliary issue. And in my mind, the the only thing that really does that easily would be alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. And if I've arrived at that diagnosis, I'll, I'll be honest, after 10 years being out of med school and being an OBGYN, the pathophysiology is going to have me stuck. So I guess let's go through uh, each of the answer options here. Yeah, sure. So the first one, I think, is meant to kind of make you look at the, like you mentioned, you know, it's something to do with liver whenever you see some issue with bilirubin conjugation. And so answer A is supposed to represent either, you know, something like Schilbert syndrome, other liver issues that could be present, but doesn't really take into account his presenting symptoms. So he's not presenting with jaundice or, or something primarily liver. He's actually presenting primarily respiratory. So I would kind of hold that if I was going through them one by one and say, oh, this one doesn't take the whole picture into account. The second option 
So chloride channels, when you're thinking about anything respiratory with chloride channels, I think I always try and remember the, you know, salty baby (laughs) kind of thing. (laughs) And so uh, I think, you know, cystic fibrosis and, you know, that doesn't necessarily relate strongly with liver. And this patient's 32 years old and has no medical history. So it'd be fairly unlikely that someone uh, with cystic, cystic fibrosis would be 32 and have no previous symptoms or previous issues. So that one I probably would just go ahead and and get rid of. And then you had mentioned alpha-1 antitrypsin. And so this third option, um, neutrophil elastase, actually relates to alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. So quick refresher, that's, you know, genetic disorder affects primarily the lungs and, um, but also affects the liver because alpha-1 antitrypsin is produced in the liver its function is to protect the lungs from neutrophil elastase, but obviously if there's deficiency in its production, it wouldn't do that. So that's why you would see a uh, something present. So it's asking the defect is most likely present in which, and that would be this neutrophil elastase, which directly relates to the deficiency of the antitrypsin. Yeah. So inactivation of neutrophil elastase is uh, the correct answer. Mm -hmm. And the final one we looked at was regulation of iron absorption. Yeah. Uh, Pretty general kind of uh, answer choice. So I think that opens up the possibility of a few diagnoses that could match it. But problems with iron absorption that lead to lung problems and liver problems. Mm -hmm. Um, The only one that I think would be notable for the board exams uh, would be like hemochromatosis, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's the bronze diabetes uh, where patients have elevated uh, blood iron levels and they get deposition of excess iron in various body tissues. So if I hadn't been confident about answer choice C, I'd probably still hold on to that one before finalizing my answer choice. And then I'd probably go back to each of these and see what my reflexive diagnosis uh, would be that matches each answer choice. So mm-hmm. conjugation of bilirubin, like you mentioned, something like Gilbert's uh, syndrome, epithelial chloride channels, cystic fibrosis, inactivation of neutrophil elastase. Uh, even if I didn't know, I'd be like, ah, maybe that one. Um, and then regulation of iron absorption hemochromatosis. So I think that it's pretty safe to say conjugation of bilirubin, Gilbert's being a prime example. I don't think that's going to have any lung issues related to it, so I'm going to cross it out. Epithelial chloride channel defect, thinking cystic fibrosis, and sure, there's some pancreatic issues that can come up with CF, but it's primarily a lung thing, and I don't think you would see any transaminitis in uh, CF. So um, inactivation of neutrophil elastase. I mean, if you're a first year and maybe maybe a second year and you haven't yet gone through that sort of pathophysiology within your um, preclinical coursework, I would say actually that the neutrophil elastase is a kind of paradigmatic pathophysiologic concept that is exclusively, I would think, uh, associated with alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. So if you can arrive and rule things out at uh, that level, um, you'll probably get to this answer choice based on the pertinent positive lung issues and the pertinent positive liver issues. I think that's adequate. 
Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, the key is a young, if you have a young person who's kind of presenting with COPD type symptoms with no history and they have liver problems, should right away jump to alpha-1 antitrypsin. And then just kind of remembering that that neutrophil elastase is what actually damages the lung tissue to cause emphysema and COPD. Um, and so just kind of remembering those little facts can help you if you see any of those pop up in a future question. All right, cool. Let's move on to the meat of this uh, section, this show, and why we really had you on. And that is to learn a bit more about you and to learn a bit more about Board Vitals. So let's start with just some personal questions and a little more background. Uh, Where did you go to school? I grew up in Canada, actually, and did my undergraduate schooling there and um, applied to medical schools that were sort of in the region. So I ended up um, crossing the border into Michigan and, and going to Michigan State for medical school. And then I went to Yale for internal medicine training and um, then over to Mount Sinai for pathology. Okay. One of the things we, we try to focus on in this podcast are the sorts of decisions that students face throughout their medical training. And uh, of course, one of those is specialty choice. What happened? What made you switch from IM to pathology? Uh, you know, I think... Probably everything from, you know, from even from high school to college to med school was kind of leading me in the direction of doing something non-clinical. Um, and I, I feel like each kind of step got closer to the, to where I am now. Um, I had a really hard time deciding in med school uh, which rotation um, was kind of my favorite, what I wanted to maybe do an additional, some additional time in. Um, I probably drove my attendings Nuts. Nuts with, yeah, <laughs> trying to, oh, do you think this is for, for me or what, you know, what, you know, because it's difficult as a student to understand what really the day-to-day practice in any specialty is like either. And um, you get so few free kind of rotations to check different things out that aren't part of your core rotations as well. And so you know, I decided to kind of start general and internal medicine, figuring I have a lot of, there are a lot of branches to branch out from there and then um, kind of decided I really enjoyed more of the academic and the teaching and, and that pathology may fit better. And, and I ended up doing none and <laughs> doing a, you know, business and education combo here. So do you still practice at all? No, I don't. So I, um, practiced clinically, um, for a year and a half. And, um, as I was sort of starting to create board vitals and, and once it became sort of more than a full-time job, I decided to leave clinical and, and do this full-time. So you found your passion was really rooted in education. Yeah, education and technology. I think that kind of um, that intersection was really interesting to me. Okay. Well, speaking of that, um, over the past 15, you know, 20 years, technology has taken an increasingly important role in preparing for exams and delivering medical education in general. What resources were available to you while you went through medical school, specifically related to step one or step two study? Yeah, I think when I was when I was a med student, everyone was using mostly books. So there's, you know, first aid and other kind of board prep books that I haven't heard much about anymore. So I assume they're not as popular anymore. By the time I was probably to, I think, step two, people were using more electronic resources. So Kaplan was starting with a QBank and UWorld was kind of just a new thing at that time, too. And so 
definitely got a taste for what it could be and in that very early early days of higher tech <laughs> prep products, I guess. Moving on to that was step one um, or step two, but probably mostly step one still. Was it as big a deal as you see it being in uh, the people you serve through Board Vitals? Yeah, step one has really become um, kind of a the importance and emphasis placed on it has become much greater than it was uh, when I was a student. I think students from my class and my school had a range of step one scores and matched into a range of specialties, not as not as strongly defined as they are today, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I imagine still, of course, the, the score itself was important then in determining which specialties were available to you to train after mm-hmm. med school. Are there any test-taking failures in your own academic history you'd be willing to share and kind of what you learned from the experience? Yeah, sure. Um, I think it was one of, it may have been a shelf exam, but there was an exam that I actually slept in through because I had been out studying all night. Oh, nice. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) It was just one of those moments where my eyes opened and it was way too light out and I knew that was not, (laughs) was not good. And so fortunately, um, you know, it's something that I had never done before and my school gave me a chance to retake. But, um, but I think I really learned at that point that I wasn't doing myself any service by staying up all night in the first place. And that's probably the reason I had over or fallen asleep at some point in the morning while studying and, and uh, slept through the test. And so I think I, you know, it really, I really learned that it takes more than one night of cramming, which is difficult to do when you're a student and there are three, four exams a week, but taking a more steady approach and just taking better care of yourself and sleeping and doing everything you can to just be in a better, better place for a test, I think is what I learned. Yeah, well, that's good. And we're often emphasizing through our kind of framework as an organization, uh, we're focusing on uh, three aspects of medical education and, and really the lives of medical students. And that framework is listen, learn, and live. So there's a, a good deal of general outside of your medical school um, responsibilities, advice that, that we're giving uh, throughout our podcast and the other things that we have going on. But I would say pretty universally, all the leaders like yourself within the med-ed space do place a big value on sleep as an essential part of health. And also, that really should be obvious, especially the way we approach patient care and and helping people manage chronic diseases or psychiatric illness. And yet, it's physician heal thyself. A lot of us mm-hmm. really don't follow that. What about now? Are you um, pretty, I don't want to say rigid, but do you have a pretty good schedule that you set for yourself that allows you to be healthy as a person who's gone through residency and and now their professional work is dedicated to medical education and running and growing a company? Yeah, definitely. I think I figured out that getting enough sleep and then getting exercise for me first thing in the morning before I open an email or look at anything. <laughs> um, really, that's that's been what's kept me sort of energized and able to work twice as hard, really, in the, you know, though I might not have 18 hours straight of work, I think I can pack in that much or more effort um, and productivity into a shorter time because I'm rested and I've, you know, I've given myself some exercise. <laughs> and so, 
Yeah, those are two things that I think definitely have changed since I was a student and I wish I had done when I was a student. All right, fair enough. Well, tell me more about Board Vitals. Let's get into what really prompted you to start this company. Yeah, actually, so when I was a pathology resident, um, I noticed this, you know, the seniors studying for their boards and uh, for pathology, especially at that time, there were no board prep resources other than um, they had was a filing cabinet that had photocopied (laughs) handwritten study tips and notes from previous graduates. And I just was blown away that that was still where we were at, (laughs) like post-internet aid, you know, it was just like, and we're using photocopied handwritten notes. And so, you know, that's when ideas started to form. And my husband was a psychiatry resident at the time, and he was um, seeing similar things at his program as well. And I just said, this is, (laughs) you know, it, it seems so so straightforward that there should be a solution the way that, you know, some solutions had started to come out um, when we were med students for USMLE, just something where you can prepare from anywhere in between patients or when, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of um, downtime, even as a resident where you're waiting for someone or waiting for results or just to be able to pull out your phone or tablet computer and do a little bit of studying rather than having to wait and, you know, stay up later at night to do that. And so we started putting content together and kind of testing it um, with other residents at the time. And it just was so well received, I guess, it kind of knew there was a need and, you know, good opportunity there. Yeah. And you uh, had mentioned that you guys started with kind of uh, medical specialty exam prep. Mm -hmm. What made you decide to move into USMLE prep? Because, I mean, why another QBank, you know? Yeah, it's so kind of it started in psychiatry, pathology expanded out to really most of the core um, medical specialties. And we were, you know, we work a lot with residency programs, program directors, and they started asking, oh, well, you know, if you had a USMLE product, um, it's something that our entire medical school or health system would be interested in purchasing that could serve really, you know, our students all the way through to our attendings. Um, And that's when we realized that, um, you know, something that, you know, the attendings could use with the med students, they could also use for themselves. And we ended up adding CME as well, because that just was kind of the next logical step to really offer something that's end to end. And so that was really our decision at that point was that we really need to serve everyone from student all the way through the end of when they retire. Yeah. So let me ask this then. I often ask people who have products they've created to help students study, and of course the answer is always everyone, but in particular, (laughs) can you speak to who's the ideal student that should use Board Vitals for their USMLE or Comlex prep? You know, I think we've studied this, and I think there have been, you know, many published papers as well on just the number, the sheer number of questions that you do really is what results in a higher score, to, I mean, to a certain extent, I'm sure you could go overboard. But, um, and so I think, you know, doing a variety of questions from a, a variety of different uh, providers and not redoing the same set over and over, we've seen really be successful. I think, um, you know, the nice thing about Board Vitals is that we are offered by a lot of medical schools. So it's something that um, doesn't necessarily need to be paid for out of pocket for a student, which is, um, you know, really convenient as well. And 
and also that they can continue using it pretty much no matter what uh, medical specialty they go into after med school. So, you know, besides step one, two, three, they can continue using like a familiar product as they you know, move on into any of the 50 different areas that we have. <laughs> yeah, totally. For students who've used a, a product at like, say, the step one level, do you offer kind of uh, repeat customer discounts, even for those who get into residency or their medical specialties? Yeah, we do. So um, if, you're, if your hospital or medical school doesn't offer board vitals products, and definitely we always have, um, you know, discounts for people who are coming in to repurchase something. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then how would you suggest a student use board vitals? Six weeks before their step one exam, four weeks uh, before their step two, use it throughout the first two years of medical school um, as a kind of way of bolstering one's uh, in-house exam preparation for med school. What's, uh, what's kind of your recommendation? So usually we tell people to use the questions for their shelf exams as they're going through, um, you know, the various rotations um, and also throughout their, you know, first year science and basic uh, coursework as well. And if you're using it sort of as a, you know, weekly review or reviewing before an exam, as well as for the, you know, three to six weeks before the actual step one or step two that seems to be where we where we see the highest scores achieved. And I think you don't see any benefit really studying intensively, so like the full-time type studying before step one beyond six weeks. I think, you know, if someone's taking it full-time all day long, studying 10 hours a day for eight, nine, 10, 12 weeks, there, there's not really any added benefit. So I think the key is really a slow, steady review throughout your first two years and then, you know, a good four to six week or three to six week, depending on the person, um, more intense study period. Looking on your website, I will note that you do have a free trial so students can see the sorts of questions that you have and, and their quality. And, and I will say that your explanations are very expansive, both for the true correct answer as well as the distractors that are mentioned. But besides that, you've got a few other plans um, for any paid plan. Number one, you guys do donate a vaccine with uh, everyone who signs up. Can you you just speak to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So we started our, uh, we call it our GiveVax campaign. And it started just as a sort of, we want to give something back to the community, something that's, you know, medically relevant, something that most um, healthcare professionals believe in. And, um, you know, seeing a lot of vaccine preventable illness increasing. And so we decided uh, with each subscription purchase, we would donate a vaccine. And it was meant to be sort of a shorter term thing. It's been Many years now, we've donated, I think, 200,000 plus um, vaccines. And I think it's just going to be something we keep doing forever. <laughs> That's awesome. I myself, and I think this is more of a, a movement amongst millennials, is to really support companies that aren't just, you know, revenue generating machines, but also those who uh, have a mission that they're uh, firmly kind of trying to implement and stay true to. And when you're able to give back in, in this manner, in my mind, uh, that is a, a definite pro checkbox in a pros and cons list, which uh, companies to choose between. So good on you guys for doing that. Yeah, yeah. 
we enjoy it. <laughs> so you also mentioned on the website that with the three or six month plans that people purchase, there's an ask a clinician feature. What is that? So we have on most of our um, question bank, well, all of our question banks at this point, we have, um, you can actually click within any of the question explanations. If you have a question or feedback or concern update, any really anything you want to communicate with our physician editor team. And so you're able to click there and you'll get feedback within usually the same day. Um, we tried, try to, but, um, you know, depends when it's closer to certain board exam dates, it takes us maybe two to get back, but, um, we'll get back to you. We have physicians from all different specialties who work on our editorial team and they'll get back to you with, you know, answering your question or feedback or let you know if something's, you know, changed or, you know, been updated. Okay. So kind of like a, like having the ability to have somewhat of an on-call tutor in one sense. Um, So students can, correct me if I'm wrong, they're just confused about an explanation, maybe even like learning the content. Are they able to submit questions related to those things? Yeah. A lot of the time it seems to be, um, you know, if we get a variety of I mean, everything from suggestions for questions on the same topic all the way through to maybe someone just misread the question and, you know, someone was able to say, oh, you know, actually, if you look at this, this is what it's asking or, you know, clarification, suggestions for images to add or graphics. I mean, we'd get um, the whole gamut of things. And and on that note, actually, we have um, plans this year. We're going to be going through the entire USMLE uh, question bank and adding graphics um, both images, like uh, photograph images, as well as graphics, diagrams, charts to every single question so that uh, there's some added visual for all of them. Cool. So what else is planned for Board Vitals besides that in the next uh, year or upcoming months, at least? Yeah, I think, you know, it's um, just ongoing updating um, and adding to to all of our content. Um, we're really trying to focus a lot on videos, having, you know, more videos available for, you know, on our both on our blog and within our question banks as well. People seem to enjoy that type of review. Um, and then, you know, always trying to be innovative and figure out ways to make studying more efficient. So playing with ideas, whether that means, you know, having something more, you know, convenient audio format or something more accessible um, for students and and people who may be commuting, et cetera. So um, lots of, you know, lots of possibilities Um, and our new apps, we're going to have an app coming out this year as well. So that'll make it a little easier to study without an internet access, which is an issue for some people if they're, you know, riding a subway or or kind of... Basement uh, hospital doing a pathology... uh... Uh, rotation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were on the 10th floor of my residency. But, uh, but yeah, so some of them are in the basement. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. That um, I think being, you know, having to have the internet connection and we do have the ability to save, you know, one exam, but not for the entire database to be available on offline. And so um, the app will allow for more of that to happen as well. All right. Last thing, uh, what advice would you give uh, to medical students as they're going through their training? Uh, The thing that you really try to stress to all of those you serve through Board Vitals? Be kinder to yourself. And and step one has become so, so high pressure. um, And it's become more of a competitive exercise rather than a learning exercise. And I think, you know, just reminding yourself what you're actually learning the material for rather than just a score and you know, trying to take care of yourself so you can 
reach whatever that that goal of uh, whatever specialty you want to match into. I think keeping it in mind and, and taking care of yourself and not being too hard on yourself if you don't achieve exactly what um, you know score you think you may need. There's always opportunity. I've heard it, all kinds of success stories from people with scores below the average for that specialty who um, were still successful. So, Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. All right, that is it for today. Like I said, a few announcements and a personal story. Uh, number one, we have launched the Step 1 Study Smarter series over on our Study Smarter podcast. So you can click the link in the show notes or just search your favorite podcatcher for the Study Smarter podcast. During this series, which runs now until end of June or so, uh, we break down almost exclusively, that's all we do, is break down practice questions in various subjects. This week, we're covering microbiology and also to help you with your dedicated prep time for uh, step one. We've also launched a new podcast, Physiology by Physio. You can subscribe to the trailer now, and we'll be putting up new episodes very soon. In that trailer, you can also find out how to get a 25% discount on a premium physio subscription. Finally, please go download our Apple iOS beta app. Just search the app store for Inside the Boards. The app features all our podcasts in one place, as well as meditations designed specifically for medical students to de-stress during, you know, periods of intense study or, you know, really tough rotations. And last kind of announcement, Board Vitals. If you want to sign up for any of their products, use the discount code ITB. 2019 for a 15% off discount on all their products. Okay, and now the story that I promised at the beginning. So I'm about to get a little bit philosophical here. So on Saturday, my 81-year-old grandfather passed away. And it's got me thinking a lot about mortality, uh, not in terms of a morbid interest in these things. I mean, I guess I do have memento mori, which is Latin for remember that you must die, tattooed on my chest. But this is more um, kind of a reality uh, that I faced uh, with Grandpa dying because he is uh, the last of my grandparents. So it's um, kind of a milestone in terms of our, our family. The experience, although deeply sorrowful, was at the same time what could truly be called a good death. So I wanted to mention this just to honor my grandfather um, and tell you a little bit about the story that he experienced as he um, entered the last you know, few months of his life. So Grandpa was a simple dude, right? He was content with kind of the daily routine of life. He was a carpenter by trade, and over the course of his life, really kind of embraced health. For instance, each year he went to his doctor for a physical. Um, the man smoked pack a day from age 14 until probably 15 years ago when one day he just quit cold turkey. And I think it was that, you know, year, maybe, you know, a few years after that, he had showed me his lab work and he had enviable numbers <laughs> in terms of um, his cholesterol and, and screening for diabetes and 
um, these sorts of things. So blood pressure, you know. And so what changed for him? Uh, well, number one, he got a lot of physical uh, physical activity during his life, um, working in labor positions as he did. And he was unbothered by, you know, the sort of, I think, vice that uh, can affect a lot of us, and that is the relentless desire to achieve the next thing. I think to me that offered a lot of perspective in terms of what matters the most in life. You know, it's not a board score. It's not the residency that you secure. It's not the position and career trajectory and the milestones along the way. Um, that you're going to take with you at the end of life. And of course, we all know this intellectually. I mean, it kind of uh, became more real to me watching this this process from more of the patient and family side of things than as a, a physician. Grandpa came down with an upper respiratory tract infection three months ago. Besides those annual trips to the doctor, i don't think he's ever been or had been admitted to a hospital or probably even gone for an appointment for some ailment. Uh, but he had these symptoms that stuck around, so he went and was diagnosed with a pneumonia. But, and maybe you can see where this is going, he was treated and the symptoms didn't go away. So he returned and, you know, a little more imaging and studies were done and uh, turns out he had a mass in the lung, which turned out itself to be stage four lung cancer with a known met to his spine. Here is somebody who really did not complain. Bitching and moaning was not his game, I guess. And although he suffered pain from that met, after trying, I think, uh, you know, Percocet or Vicodin once, he stopped taking it because of the way it made him feel. He was tough. The sort of beautiful thing about it was he was able to stay in his home until like 12 hours before he passed away, surrounded by all his children and a lot of his grandchildren. But a story I would like to tell is this, again, just to honor his memory. After we had all kind of cried and, and said goodbye uh, we started to tell stories as we gathered around uh, his bed. Saturday morning, Grandpa woke up, hobbled over to his exercise machine. You know, one of these, uh, I don't know if you remember, like Tony Little gazelle type things that kind of flexes your spine and you, you uh, push your legs and pull um, your upper extremities. And uh, my uncle, who was staying with him, said, Dad, what are you doing? And, and Grandpa feebly walks over to this machine, got on and, and exercised that morning. He then had breakfast and at that point aspirated something, lost consciousness, went to the hospital. At this point, my mom called and, and asked me sort of, you know, what things meant. And, and this is something you'll all face and probably already have with family members that you become a sort of source of information and and it's you know another thing that changes about you as you go through medical education you are often looked to not just by patients but for family members as well uh, to help them navigate the confusing world of healthcare 
and also reminds you that for those who have no training in medicine, that world can be really confusing. My mom calls and I said, you know, this doesn't sound good, especially given his state and cachexia and all this. And um, I really think you should try to get him into a hospice care facility, which they did. And, and thankfully, he made it there, was surrounded by all his children and a lot of his grandchildren uh, who were able to say goodbye. And he passed away with everyone by his side, clutching a cross and covered with a Marine Corps blanket. It was the sort of thing that I think a lot of us hope for, but what's important in experiencing that, which uh, uh, being a part of that, which I think a lot of us have been at this point in our lives, is that a lot of the things to which we attribute importance in our lives, um, the sorts of things that overwhelm us, the perspective that we need to take is within the context of what is most important and at the end of our lives, right, the board scores we have, the career uh, milestones we achieved, the money that we have in our banks may contribute to our legacy, but when faced with our imminent mortality, none of those things matter so much as our relationships and our deeply held beliefs and putting those things in the order of priorities before the sorts of things that cause us significant stress. And, and I mean, hey, some of us, our families uh, stress us out. <laughs> but even in what can seem like a triviality in the context of death and dying, like a board score or uh, a good grade on a rotation, there is some measure in which when overwhelmed by those things, you've got to think that as much as this matters, there are things that matter more, uh, hence why we often encourage you know, the uh, developments of things outside of your medical school to keep your life balanced and hopefully set you on the path to uh, a life that is, is examined and well-lived so that at the end of it, as they say, you have no regrets. So just to end this, again, just wanted to provoke some thoughts and honor the memory of my grandfather, and I will close with this. And I dedicate this poem I wrote and have never published it or really shared it with anyone, um, and it's called Dragging on the Dead. We drag the dead on living who hold fast and fierce since birth through teeth cut and first kisses, driver's ed, and the weddings of friends, to whatever happy or gloomy end, we too are dragged on. We put in tubes and cut on through, or else irradiate any cancer that comes our way. We who cling to fear so much more than faith, as light from the present world fades, before the candle wick from the next is lit. And we too, are dragged on. That's it. Thanks for listening on this 20th take. So I didn't want to cry on the podcast. I thought that would make you guys even more uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> but uh, thank you for listening and supporting Inside the Boards. We support you. Go live your life and 
call your grandparents.